1: Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.
2: Hello, everyone. I'm Elle, and you're listening to What's the Crack? In today's episode, I sit down with Will Bastido, the co-director of the Toronto Chapter of Canadian Students for Sensible Drug Policy, or CSSDP. In today's episode, Will and I go deep into psychedelics and find out what's the crack with the new research around psychedelics and mental health, what's the crack with promising new leads on psychedelics and epilepsy, and what's the crack with microdosing. In this episode, if you come across some words and think, hey, what is a 5 h 2 t I can't even say it. What is a 5-HT2C receptor? Fear not, this is a serotonin receptor. If you're then thinking, what's serotonin? Serotonin is a neurotransmitter that is said to regulate mood, behavior, appetite, sleep, and is said to maybe have a link with depression. It is also what these psychedelic drugs that we're talking about in this episode latch onto. Anyway, I hope you enjoyed the episode, and remember to follow up on Twitter at WhatTheCrackPod. Enjoy! Okay, hello everyone, and welcome to another episode of What's the Crack? I'm joined today with Will Bastido from the Canadian Students for Sensible Drug Policy here in Toronto. Will, could you tell me a sentence or two about who you are and what you do?
3: Um, sure. I'm a student at University of Toronto, just graduating out of my fourth year, and I'm the director, co-director of the Canadian Students for Sensible Drug Policy chapter in Toronto. Um, And we've been, or my role has largely been as a facilitator for a whole bunch of conferences that have gone on this year um, and a few that are coming up, um, working with psychoactive drugs and the legality largely around psychedelics this year. There's been a lot of excitement, um, but also cannabis, um, cannabis activism and cannabis legality and illegality. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I guess, an activist and hopeful researcher moving into the field of drug research and drug policy. Okay,
2: great. And um, so what is your degree at the moment on?
3: Uh, pharmacology and neuroscience. Okay. Particularly, yeah, right. uh, the pharmacol- or my focus is around the pharmacology of psychoactives, particularly cannabis, as well as stimulants and psychedelic mm-hmm. drugs.
2: Okay, and I'm assuming that um, that affects with um, neuroscience and how it affects yes, with the brain. Yes, of
3: course, the, the okay. neuroscience of that and the neuro, I guess the potential therapeutic values of these medicines, whether it's for conditions like narcolepsy and ADHD with the stimulants, the, I don't know, cannabis, they're saying cures everything these days, mm-hmm. um, or even with the psychedelics, um, they're talking about some, I guess, broader applications of things like addictions and mood disorders. I'm also particularly interested in some rare forms of epilepsy that it seems like psychedelics might be a promising treatment for as well.
2: Okay, great. Interesting, and I'm, we'll, we'll unpack that a little bit later because yeah. I want to get into that one. Um, should we start quite broadly in discussing what is uh, Canadian Students for Sensible Drug Policy or Students for Sensible Drug Policy as a whole, not me now, just, you know.
3: Um, well, as a broader whole, I guess we're a, we're a student advocacy organization um, largely founded around getting the research that's being done at the universities and the policies that we know would be smart to have as drug policies and then getting these put into practice. Mm. Um, Of course, a big drive in the past for the organization has been cannabis legalization. Of course, in Canada, that's happening now. And it's been interesting because now that we're coming into that stage, as an organization, we're talking, we can become less single-minded, but let's get cannabis legalized, let's talk about harm, let's get people talking about harm reduction because now they're talking about it. And now we're starting to get into, you know, what are the therapeutic values of some other drugs you might have overlooked, like the psychedelics, as well as talking about, I guess, what we actually want a legal cannabis framework to look like now that it's happening, um, in drug policy, and it's a really exciting time in that sense as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, ass- I'm assuming that, obviously, this is a, a chapter, as you, yes. you call them, yes, in, Toron- in Toronto. Is this the same all over Canada? Is there um, a lot of I'm- chapters?
3: In the States, there are a whole bunch of chapters, and across Canada, there's a whole bunch of chapters of, Mm
2: -hmm.
3: I guess, just people getting together, getting organized, and getting excited about drugs. (laughs) Yeah, great. (laughs) And I'm assuming, can
2: anyone set up a chapter?
3: Um, Yes, so long as you're with uh, the student, so long as you're with the university, you Mm -hmm. reach out to Desi Pavlova, who would be our, I think, the head of, not the chapter, but Student for Sensible Drug Policy as, I guess, an international group. And we have resources that can set you up. We have we have some funding. We have resources that these people can access. And we mm-hmm. have a fairly large network across the country, which can be really handy. Um, mm-hmm. I'm looking at going to Vancouver over the summer. And of course, if I'm going to Vancouver over the summer, I'm going to be doing work with the CSSDP over there because it would be silly not to.
2: Okay. And I, when did you first get involved with the CSSDP?
3: So we had um, back, I guess it would be three years ago, there was the first Mushrooms conference with CSSDP run by Daniel Gregg, who's been who moved mountains for the organization. He's taking a bit of a step back because it can be crazy, as I'm learning now. Um, and on not the first, I saw the advertisement for the first one, and I missed it. And then I saw the advertisement for the second one, and I missed it because I had work. And I, con- you know, convinced myself for this third one, I'm going to book it months in ahead. And asked if I wanted to volunteer, and I said, well, I've got the whole day off anyway, so here I go. Mm-hmm and by the end of the conference of course i'd been interested before coming to university of toronto in drug policy and advancing research in cannabis psychedelics and stimulants um and it seemed like a really obvious way to get involved and since that it's been i guess probably since the mushrooms conference two months Mm. and then i was then i became director because dan wanted to take a step back from being being director and i've Quickly found myself facilitating talks from Robin carhart Harris on psychedelics, on microdosing. We had a really exciting seminar in, or uh, symposium in February. Um, because the other thing that I've realized in the past year is that there's a ton of research that's being done that isn't getting translated to the public, mm-hmm. whether that's cannabinoid research, which people aren't talking about in reference to cannabis, or whether that's lots of psychedelic research that's not being done with psilocin or LSD so you're not finding it on those Wired articles the same way. Yes. Because said article on DOI and mice from 1980 isn't as said no sexy or exciting, but...
2: Yes, absolutely. But we're
3: starting, I guess, to look back through those papers as we're suggesting maybe we can use psilocin or MDMA or cannabis as therapies. Mm-hmm. Um, what are they doing?
2: So taking a step back, were you interested in what you are now, as in drug policy and psychedelics, before you started your degree? or because of the movement in your uh, degree at University
3: of Toronto? Um, yes, I would. I got involved in, yeah, no, I, I started, I always had an interest in biochemistry, mm. and when I was in high school, I started smoking weed. And a lot of my friends, um, because I had that interest in biochemistry, mm. I knew a lot about the drugs. I checked Arrowhead. I was very conscientious yeah. about my drug use. Um, and my friends were not. So they quickly started asking me questions that really their doctors should have been answering at the time. Um, here's my medication. Should I be mixing this with this? I found these straight. And I suddenly realized how much of a need there was for even a standardized type of study yeah. for these kinds of drugs, for this kind of drug use. Um, and so it became a really salient and interesting point to me that for drugs that we, even if we are, you know, take the FDA, CIA assumption. Um, The FDA assumption that these drugs are not useful, we don't even really understand the harms of them very well. (laughs) Yeah. So that got me interested. And then when I went to Toronto, I had that in mind, got interested in pharmacology, got interested in neuroscience. Mm. um, And I started to discover how much research was being done that people just didn't seem to know about because, like I said before, it's not well translated or Mm. it's not. You don't have the person saying, maybe this drug can be a promising lead for something like epilepsy that people really aren't thinking of when they think of something like psychedelics.
2: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I feel that that's a similar, almost a similar story for my, like, awakening, so to speak, into a drug policy world. Because it was when I went to university, because I did... um, chemistry in my undergrad and that was learning about all different drugs and it was surprising to me to learn about cocaine, heroin, you know the big the big original uh, illicit drugs and being taught about them without any sort of political swing. It was really refreshing to go oh yeah you don't have to have a preamble of drugs are bad and no one should take them. It's just like no there's so much research being done.
3: And I feel in the psychedelic community as well there certainly seems to be not even necessarily, that. though there also also certainly people who take the drugs and are very impressed by them. But research, a lot of people coming from the cognitive science, from the neuroscience background, who are saying, even if we aren't, again, irrespective of the drug's usefulness as medicine, there's something clearly profound happening in the brain, and this is a very useful tool for learning mm-hmm. about how the brain does things like predict reward, um, determine long-term versus short-term futures, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um so yeah, there's a lot of and we're working towards getting some of that research done, hopefully, and that'll be exciting.
2: Okay, great. So I guess yes, let's move on to um yeah, start start us off with some psychedelic chat.
3: Just for sake of ease, restrict psychedelics to drugs which agonize the five HT2A receptor. Okay. Um so this broadly speaking is referring to LSD, psilocybin. I guess in a true psychedelic sense, think of psilocybin psilocin, psilocybin, LSD. And drugs which are working in the same brain system. Uh, mescaline right. would be the other. Mescaline,
2: and what about? Let me think. Just thinking. What's like uh, DMT? Is
0: that involved yes, DMT, as well? So DMT yeah.
3: is DMT is a very a very effect. So and actually, yeah. So, so most of these drugs are derivatives or similar to the serotonin molecule. Mm. Um, I guess to give examples of drugs which people often think of as psychedelic, that I would call not truly. Uh, ketamine mm. is not a true psychedelic. It's a dissociative. It's yeah. an anesthetic. Um, PCP is a dissociative anesthetic. Um, Delirium. so if mm. somebody's, I don't know, huffing paint or something, this isn't giving them a psychedelic effect. Yeah. Um, and, and most notably in a lot of these drugs, which are psychedelics are not inducing a delusional experience. Mm. If you see somebody who's high on oil or high on... They think that they're in places that they're not. They are clearly out of touch with their environment, it's mm. like somebody having a dementia or psychosis, right? where people with psychedelics can actually show a remarkable ability to realize where they are, who they are, et cetera. Mm. They just also feel these intense feelings of euphoria, visual patternings, feeling mm. of oneness, et cetera.
2: Yeah. Okay. Just to touch on the ketamine thing, I feel that there's a movement in classing ketamine with psychedelics because of the movement of trying to use it in um, for therapeutic settings yes. for um depression etc yes. just at the same time as um psilocybin and mdma are being used yes. or being explored in those ways that i feel that that's it's because it's an illicit drug and it's going within that movement yeah. i feel that people are just going oh yeah yeah and, and they
3: both and i mean from a from a third person observer if i'm you know talking to somebody who knows little or nothing about drugs. I'll say, oh, well, mushrooms, are, I'll eat some mushrooms and then I'll trip and hallucinate for a few hours, whereas I'll you know, snort some ketamine and then I'll trip and hallucinate for a few hours. Mm. To a person who doesn't have a lot of experience, there may not subjectively be a lot of difference, even mm. if any user can tell you that ketamine mm. and mushrooms are profoundly different drugs um, and probably working in different ways. Um, recent, yeah. There's a recent study where I saw It was like Wired or somebody writing about it um, where they were trying to use nasal ketamine Okay. To get the same results as they've been doing in the ketamine clinics, and it doesn't work. Okay. And they the patients feel disoriented. They feel wonky. They feel like you know if you give some if somebody's recreationally using ketamine, and they don't not feel they they can't test for the antidepressant effects because they feel like All crap right. afterwards. Um, and similarly, there's some animal studies that are looking at norketamine, mm. and it looks like it may actually be the breakdown byproduct of ketamine that are the antidepressants and okay. not the Trip, if you will, whereas with the psychedelics like mushrooms, LSD, etc., it's much more likely that the two, that the trip and the curative experience, mm. are actually separable from each other.
2: Okay, that's interesting. Yes. Okay, and which um, psychedelics are being looked at for epilepsy?
3: So, and it's a bit of a misnomer. Um, and I guess to give the long story on it, back around 2008, um, there was some research again at U of T, and I've talked to Dr. Bercovici who did some very interesting work with Dravet syndrome. And mm-hmm. Dravet syndrome to provide context. Um, and broad, more broadly, um, it's called atypical absence epilepsies. Okay. So they're uh, catastrophic epilepsies of childhood. Around one to two years of age, they start having infantile spasms. And they are severely cognitively disrupted. They mm-hmm. never develop fully, often having excess of 30 seizures a day. These are very severe cases.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um,
3: now, it's a similar to... Absence seizures, which people may have heard of, where the person I guess I can't show it on the podcast, but the person had his zones out for a second. Mm-hmm. Um, some kids grow out of these, and, but obviously some do not. So, having and getting drugs for these atypical cases is very important because right now, not much works. Um, now, one of the things that we are using presently is a drug called fenfluramine, which is a serotonin releaser all over your body, it releases all the serotonin. And it works, but it has a lot of side effects, namely cardiac side effects. You have a lot of serotonin two B receptors in the heart, mm-hmm. and if you activate those, ser- if you activate a whole bunch of receptors in the heart of any sort, it's probably not going to be doing great things. Yeah. Um, I not being a cardiologist, taking a wild swing at it—that's that's what I've heard. Um, so what they did is they said, if we're releasing serotonin to stop the epilepsy, maybe we should see which serotonin receptor is being activated. But they, and they found that particularly the agonists of the 2a which was i think their study used doi which some okay. people have probably heard of as a psychedelic amphetamine derivative um doi stopped the seizures
2: okay and the
3: animals go from you can they have the you know eeg that's up and down and up and that looks like an animal having a seizure um or actually it's a spike wave discharge um mm. it's kind of different with absence epilepsy um and the animals stop seizing um and that was the end of that study. And then mm-hmm. I think in most recently in the States, what they're doing is they did a study with Daniel's Drave syndrome, showed that it worked and they tried a drug called Lorcaserin. Mm-hmm. Um, actually I'll, so knowing this, I'll put that on pause for a second yep. to explain Lorcaserin. Um, because Lorcaserin is something I'm really excited about, which okay. I'm really hoping gets approved in Canada. And, um, I've no disclosure the company that makes it hasn't been paying me, though maybe they should be. <laughs> um, <laughs> By saying you live it so but, much. What is this drug? Um, so lorcaserin is a drug they've approved in the United States mm. um, for the treatment of obesity uh, mm-hmm. to reduce appetite. And it's a 5-HT2C agonist. Right. It happens to also have a decent amount of affinity for the 5-HT2A receptor. And these, are,
2: again, are serotonin receptors. Yes. They're yes. Serotonin,
3: the serotonin 2A and 2C receptors, mm-hmm. which, as the name implies, they're very similar. Yeah. Um, it's been suggested that they have reversing potentials or that one is counterbalancing the other but it seems that the serotonin 2C agonists that don't have any 2A activity aren't getting through trials Right. and this one which does have 2A activity was helping people lose weight and wasn't having any severe side effects huh. so in the United States they've approved it for weight loss and they found that these people were smoking less too so now they're looking at it for smoking cessation right. and I'm looking at this saying these kinds of habit changing behaviors are kind of similar to what psychedelic therapy is probably to treat Um, And unsurprisingly, this 2A activity means that if you were to take a lot of Mm -hmm. Morcocera, don't do this, by the way, if you do manage to find it. The reports also say that it feels awful. But it seems to be, a in a sense, have psychedelic activity just at very low, much lower doses. Uh. So nobody's tripping on this drug. But it seems to be activating that same receptor system and getting a lot of the same benefits. So because this is an approved drug you can use in people coming back to epilepsy they tried it in a case study with five case studies and it seems to be a well-received drug but what it looks like is what it is which is not a very good 5-HT2A agonist so what I wonder and would love to see studies on obviously we're a long ways off but if you were to get something like DOI or psilocybin or LSD like a really good 5-HT2A agonist we might be on to something now I want to say this with a deal of caution if we're including this because I don't want parents with kids with epilepsy to go out and get there yeah absolutely um, particularly and Sophia Cord mentioned with autism there can be a degree of parents want to try anything to help their kid Mm -hmm. and this is why I'm very apprehensive saying you know LSD does not cure epilepsy it's just for some seizure disorders this may be a very promising lead Mm -hmm. and it's very easy to demonstrate when a kid's having 30 seizures a day and you give him a drug and he goes down having one seizure a week, and it looks like you can get this kind of efficacy for LSD with some kinds of seizures. Okay. Um, so to me, it seems silly to overlook that research. And hopefully, in the states, mm-hmm. whether through Lorcaserin in a sideways way, or if somebody's gonna and come is right
2: Lorcaserin a psychedelic?
3: The company that makes it is arguing very hard that it is not. Is that ca- for which I suspect is for legal reasons, right? Got you. Um, but. It is scheduled in the United States, so if you have it without a prescription, it is illegal, right. because they're worried the 5-HT2A could possibly be hallucinogenic, and it looks like when they did abuse liability testing, high do- people found high doses unpleasant, mm-hmm. but people also... One of the side effects can be hallucinations.
2: Okay. I guess there's... Um... <sighs> don't even think good but you know like when if you take high doses and then it's pleasant and yes. then you get a hair hallucin- hallucinations yes. that's probably bad because yes. then that is you know abuse liability but if yes. you actually take quite a lot and it is bad it's quite a you know i guess a safety net of you don't want to have it yeah. yes that, that and
3: what what's been and what for the psychedelics has been a running issue is so i've mentioned the serotonin 2a and the serotonin mm. 2c receptors which are both in your brain and have a whole lot of very important functions in your yeah. brain and are probably how psychedelics are working their magic or whatever. But you also have the 5-HT2B receptor, and you have those in your heart, as I mentioned before, and you have a lot of them in your heart. So a lot of non-specific ones can induce um, something like the thickening of a cardiac valve, which has not been definitively linked to cardiac problems, but especially when you're talking about using a drug to help obese smokers, cardiac risk is very relevant. Um, Yes, absolutely. And in Morcocerin, it also, because again, it's, a very dirty psych, um, serotonergic drug, it also has that 5-HT2B affinity. Mm. So people, there is concern that people using high doses, it's not, it's far from an ideal drug, but it seems to be coming through the pipeline. And yeah. it's definitively proven to work and we can give it to humans in trials already. Okay. So in that sense, it it's very promising. And I, I'm surprised that I haven't seen more connecting it with the microdosing scene.
2: Yeah, that is interesting. Can I just ask, you know, with the, um, what you were looking at with epilepsy and psychedelics within that—have any human trials been uh, been done, or is this working off animal trials? This is all working off animals. animal trials. Uh, there
3: is okay. The only, is the only psychedelic or pseudo that there's any kind of human um,
2: right. getting
3: even right now in for alcoholism or smoking cessation studies, mm. where the people coming in are more or less healthy normals.
2: Yeah, Can I just ask you Because we've spoken about microdosing But I've realised that we haven't explained what that is oh, yes. So could you explain to me what microdosing yes. is please? So microdosing
3: um, So microdosing I guess was a concept That started Correct me if I'm Or if you've heard of it before mm-hmm. lad, But probably around 2000, 2010, 2011 or mm-hmm. so 2012 um, A lot Or some of it was in association with the research Chemical scene that had started which um, but where you've had, I guess, a new psychedelic renaissance. The Rolling Stone wrote an article about microdosing in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. And at the time, it was like one guy who was taking low doses of LSD because, I don't know, he was a crazy guy in Silicon Valley, I guess. And Rolling Stone published it. And suddenly, all of Rolling Stone's reader base, who are, I assume, reasonably progressively minded if you're picking up yeah. something you know, that says the new phenomenon of microdosing LSD in Silicon Valley, and people started trying it. And it's kind of weird because, retrospectively, we can Mm. it's obvious to say, why wouldn't we just try a dose that's sub-psychedelic? It seems to be a a growing and more more and more widespread phenomenon.
2: Yeah, and great... Right, I'm trying to explain this from what I remember with the articles, but what I'm thinking is it's like a typical dose that's split up in over a week or over more than that and take it once every few days. Yes. Is that correct?
3: So a bunch of different... And one of the issues that we've been having in the field, not just in microdosing, but psychedelics in general, I guess, is there's not a very consistent protocol. Mm, Um, James Fadiman seems to be working out the most popular, or probably the best one,
1: um,
3: which is that he, it something, every third, so every third day, instead of taking a psychedelic dose, you're taking a substantially sub-psychedelic dose. I've heard anywhere between on the lower end, one or two micrograms, on the higher end, 10 or 15. But it seems the principle is that you are taking enough that your perception is not notably altered, but your mood, etc., cetera, um, cognition, etc., can be enhanced or uplifted or what have mm. you. Um, most notably or most interestingly, what they seem to be discovering is that the day of is only part of the effect. So okay. rapt- where what they expected, I guess, was or were worried about was people taking, you know, a bit feels good, take more and more until they start having problems with it. Instead, what they find is it's people take less over time. Okay. They started with dosing every other day, and they found that it was the people who were sending them the information cut back to every third day. Huh. And it's okay. the third day that they start to really feel that enhanced creativity, that enhanced social flow. So there's a big need um, in cannabis and psychedelics um, for there to be a more standardization in this respect. Mm. Um, but on the other hand, what we're seeing, again, in both cannabis and psychedelic research, is a large amount of variability and i think that's going to be a struggle for us in coming cause let's say we're trying to do something like microdosing mm. a major side effect is going to be you're going to have somebody that's particularly sensitive yeah. as we know for example people who have had early stress so drug out ad- people who you are relevant treatment populations may mm. be dramatically more dramatically less responsive and figuring out stuff like dose response our current model of drug development and pharmacology is just not very well suited to it yeah
2: Well, I hope that the more this, you know, cannabis becoming legal in Canada will open a lot more doors for research. Yes. So hopefully that will flow on to cycle. It looks like
3: the, probably the three flagships that we've had in Canada. Um, Cannabis has been one because obviously, you know, in terms of having a legality framework Mm. um, in one of the other podcasts one of your uh, guests was mentioning just how much of a headache it can be getting a legal framework for each successive drug. Um, So cannabis is one. MDMA seems to be another. Um, There's a Mm. lot of new research cropping up here. Anne Wagner at Ryerson University is doing couples therapy with MDMA. Um, Because that's
2: what used to... They used to use MDMA for couples therapy (laughs) ages ago, wasn't it? Yes, yes. Because it's their empathogen, meaning it makes you feel lovely and yes. that you love everybody and you're willing sides. to open up and yes. your fear
3: centers shut off and those exactly. deep memories come flowing through you and it can be quite it, it can be quite wonderful mm. um and i think recent years our government or world governments have been more accepting of mm. at least the therapeutic opportunity yeah um it i'm hearing it see there seems to be some research in europe there's research in canada mm research in the states is a bit more tentative with the political situation there of course but um
2: there's just so much i'm actually i I think we'll round up now because we've covered a lot of topics (laughs) (laughs) we've done a lot Um. so well thank you for joining me will and uh speak to you soon
3: thank you it's been a pleasure
2: and that was our interview with Will Bastido. I hope you enjoyed it. If you're interested in the CSSDP, check out the Canadian Students for Sensible Drug Policies work online, and follow them on Twitter. And follow us on Twitter while you're at it. We have a new email address, which is what's the crack podcast at gmail.com. So holler us there. See you next time.